I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Simon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? How did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we re- select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Cons Minds, which if you're on Twitter and you're following us, shoot us a line. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. We'd appreciate it. If there's a, if there's a book that you think that we should pick up, give us a recommendation. But for episode 25 today, we read essays by Sorab Amari and David French from 2019 from the last several weeks. Right. So this, this dispute is something that's still kind of uh, bubbling up in the conservative media. And uh, it started back on May 29th when Sorab Amari published a piece in the journal First Things that ignited a debate among conservatives, touching on many of the themes we've discussed over these past two seasons. Amari's essay called Against David Frenchism was a critique of the classical liberal stream of American conservatism that he felt David French in particular embodied. So first, I guess a little on who these two men are. Saurabh Amari was uh, born in Iran in 1985 and emigrated to the United States with his family in 1998. He earned a law degree from Northeastern University, but did not practice and worked instead as a writer. By 2012, he was a columnist and editor with the Wall Street Journal. And he's currently an editor at the New York Post and a contributing editor of the Catholic Herald. In 2016, Amari converted to Catholicism, and his conversion is a subject of his first book, which was published earlier this year. French was born in Kentucky in 1969, and like Amari, he's an attorney, graduated from Harvard Law in 94. He served as a lecturer at Cornell Law School and in private practice, eventually became president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. In 2005, French left the foundation and joined the Army Reserve. He was deployed deployed to Iraq in 2007 with the Judge Advocate General's Corps. Currently, he's a senior writer with National Review and a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. So we'll, we'll start with Amari's essay, which was a sort of broadside against the coalition that had sort of developed basically over our whole lifetimes, if you're middle-aged, like Corey and I are, of the combination of social conservatism and libertarianism together under the sort of big tent conservative Republican uh, Goliath that's been the political force on the right for all those years. Amari's issue is with the libertarian half of that. He thinks it has basically failed us Mm -hmm. in, in that we keep ceding ground to the left without making up any, and eventually that there will be no place left in the public sphere for any sort of social conservatism, specifically Christian conservatism. Yeah, so this is a critique, obviously, that uh, you and I have discussed on multiple episodes. You know, I'd point Mm -hmm. to George Will, to Robert Bork, even uh, Edmund Burke, is a critique of classical liberalism, you know, because the critique is basically that that liberalism leads to more liberalism, in other words, to, to greater autonomy, to greater complete uh, individualism. And obviously that, as we've talked about many times, that puts pressure on traditional institutions like family and, you know, church and local neighborhood and this sort of thing. And, and as uh, Bork, you know, argued 
it just leads to more and more rights, you know, as, mm-hmm. as one, one right leads to another and it just, you know, leads to less social cohesion, which is a real legitimate question that, that to me makes a lot of sense. You know, more rights leads in the direction of less morality. That That's where, you know, Bork and Will in particular were pretty fiercely uh, cr- critical. And especially from a religious standpoint, you know, more rights means we're, you know, we're a civil libertarian direction is leading straight away from where, you know, tr- traditional morality has, has kept our society for, for generations. What seems strange to me is, I, uh, we talked about this before the podcast, but I am not going to claim to be the expert on David French, although I have read his stuff. He strikes me as a a pretty solid, good soldier, social conservative, and just seems kind of like an odd target for for this criticism. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think French is as a lawyer, he's he's filed a lot of cases and and gotten some good verdicts that are protecting you know, uh, individual conscience rights and, you know, trying to keep religious conservatives from being squeezed out of jobs because of their religion or squeezed out of other areas of the public sphere. And that was, I think what was off-putting about this essay is it was weirdly personal against French because he's not, I mean, he's, he's just one guy and he's actually doing a lot for conservatism. I, th- I thought, um, served in Iraq. He's not a, he's not a paper tiger. He's a, mm-hmm. he's, right. he's been fighting the good fight. But I think, I think Amari's point here is that liberalism itself, the idea that fighting on those terms is insufficient. And it, it's, it's a, it's a course that social conservatism is, is doomed to lose because we're, we're playing by rules that are not our own and that where the enemy, and I think he does use the, those terms. The enemy is not really concerned with rights and rules and proper form. They want to smash down what we have and put their own thing in place of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas we are, we being constrained by these rules, we, we who believe that the end doesn't justify the means that there are things you shouldn't do. And there are democratic norms that should be followed. We hamstring ourselves in Amara's telling, I think that, and it, it makes the fight uneven and it makes it one that we are destined to lose. And so I think there's two streams of critique here and it's strange to me that he tangles the two together because I, I think that they're kind of unrelated, but on the one hand we, he has the critique of classical liberalism that more rights leads to um, more autonomy and, and less, uh, less authority of traditional morality and church in the public square. And I think we'll, definitely talk more about that. That's one side of it. But then the other side is this question of, are we aggressive enough? You know, is the mm-hmm. the Christian right, the uh, social conservatives, are they aggressive enough in the battle against what they view as the onslaught of the leftist uh, libertinism, you know, uh, the degradation of morality? So the, his essay, Amari's essay is entitled Against David Frenchism. And so this, the Frenchism part really applies to that, that second critique of, are we aggressive enough? He says, yeah. David French, he characterizes David French as focused on, he calls it a persuasion or a sensibility, an earnest and insistent, polite quality. 
It's unsuitable to the crisis facing religious conservatives, he says. David French believes the institutions of a technocratic market society are neutral zones that should, in theory, accommodate both traditional Christianity and the libertine ways and paganized ideology of the other side. I think that second half is the other critique. So on the one hand, you have the critique of, are we sufficiently dedicated and aggressive enough in fighting the good fight? And then on the other hand, is this approach to the battle the best, most effective approach to actually achieving the objectives given that market society and classical liberalism and the in, uh, elevating the individual over the group really has this this tendency to uh, lead in one direction and that is more rights you know m- more of a force field around the individual you know it's, it pushes back against um, traditional mores and and uh, traditional understanding of yeah public morality and um, human relationships and that sort of thing Mm-hmm. That that's a good way to put it. I mean, it, it really is two different arguments. It's kind of like one is strategy and one is tactics. Yeah, you know, it's, it's the strategy. You know, should we be fighting uh, on li- on the terms of classical liberalism gives us, even if the other side is doing that sort of asymmetrical warfare? And then the tactics, should we be jerks about it? Basically, yeah, right. I mean, right. should we should we get in their faces the same way that Antifa gets in people's faces? Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, should we should we engage in the sort of street fights that we normally in a liberal democracy think are beneath us or should be past us. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's a fair point. I mean, I, it's, it made me think of this, the, the, one of the problems of you saw in, in the thirties in Spain and in Germany is that you had the communists had their street gangs and the fascists had their street gangs and the, the liberal Democrats had the rule of law and that was the one that got squeezed out first. Yeah, and, yeah. and what was left in Europe was to fight among the two different totalitarians as to who was going to occupy the field. I don't think we're there. I think, and I also don't think we're in Europe. I mean, I don't think we're there physically. I think America has this um, part of our national character is more respect for democratic norms, whereas the, the problems the, of, of Europe were also the problems of societies that were trying out democracy for the first time after a history of autocracy and various different autocrats. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we're in that situation, but I, I understand why someone who studied that history might think this is where we're going. We're, we're getting squeezed on both sides and, and clinging to liberal values might only help the enemy. It's uh, Yeah. And so on, on that front, on the front of tactics, you know, I think this is a common conversation of, uh, you know, on the extreme left and extreme right. Like, you know, we're playing patty cake and, they're playing for keeps, you know, they're, they're, they're using tanks and, and we're using squirt guns, you know, it's time, it's time to take the battle, you know, to, to the next level and fight fire with fire. And the other side, they know how to fight fire with fire. And all we do is sit there and get burned. <laughs> That's a great point. The left says the same thing about us. All I don't time. know if we always hear that. Yeah. yeah. They, I mean, I've heard my friends on the left say the same thing. Oh, we always fold. We always give in. We never fight. And that's what I have heard people who are especially pro-Trump conservatives saying, finally, we're fighting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think both side, each side thinks the other side is the real fighters and we're just, you know, giving in all the time. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I wonder how much of this is just like where you sit and yeah, the perception thing. It's uh, I, So, I so frankly, the, the tactics aspect of this critique, just I'll be honest with you, it doesn't 
it doesn't interest me too much because I, I just feel like this is a such a common refrain that I hear all the time. Again, I I work in politics, policy, whatever. So people are constantly saying like, all we want to do is roll over and, you know, we'll, we'll let them steamroll us, you know, time again and again and again. And I, I do think that both sides say this cause I, I hear the complaints all the time. Uh, my own view for whatever it's worth. I, I, I just don't think that acting nasty is going to gain you very much. And, and if, you know, how far do we take fighting fire with fire? Do we actually go to war? You know, do we actually have a duel? You know, do we actually mm-hmm. have a civil war? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think I, I'm with David French when it comes to civility. That's all we have going for us. This thin veneer of civilization can be, you know, ripped off in a moment. And I mean, we've we've seen with the current administration how how quickly things can go south and uh, I just am not on board with any of that. And I, I don't think that it gains us anything and it's not a new, you know, it's not a new critique. It's not a new complaint. I just feel like it's old and tired and, and common. <laughs> yeah. And that, that civic, that civility is itself a civic virtue that we should be standing up for. And that is one of the virtues that should be in the public square is that we can talk to each other. And Amari's point is one that I think before, I really thought about these two essays. I was, I felt, I'm, you know, I was picking up what he was putting down a little bit. I mean, because you do get frustrated in fighting an enemy that isn't fighting on the, you know, they don't play by Marcus Queensberry rules in, in, in terms of culture. I mean, maybe in terms of politics they do, but in terms of culture, the left is always going to play by different rules than the right because the right has respect for tradition and the left doesn't. So, I mean, they're, their platform is eradication, whereas ours basically can't be if you're the, any kind of conservative other than perhaps an objectivist. Um, but any normal kind of conservative has that respect for tradition that constrains us. But in being forced to confront these two views, I mean, I think that I, I, I also tend to fall more towards French. I think when you really think about it, if we get what we want by this and in, and in the course of it, destroy these civic politenesses, these civic virtues of civility along the way. I mean, what are we left with? I mean, we're left with a choice between left-wing thugs and right-wing thugs. I mean, even... Yeah, exactly. And it also assumes that we always win and get to we get to be the ones who choose what to impose, which, of course, is not true. The other side always wins sometimes. And, they're, and then, you know, when you... Uh, when you've chopped down all of these rules and constraints, then the other side's certainly not going to abide by them. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's a frustration of wanting to win, and I, I I completely get that, but I don't think it's really been been thought all the way through. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right to me. I, I think that uh, both sides have their own advantages. On the one hand, you identify the advantage of the left, which is that they more or less control the the media industrial complex uh, Hollywood and, and basically all the network news channels and mainstream news and everything to do with television and, and video. Uh, and that, that is a huge advantage. On the other hand, our advantage is the fact that most people actually don't want to, you know, erase their lives and start from square zero. I mean, yeah, they have a lot more persuading to do than actually we do. I think, I mean, over, over the long haul, I think you're right that, that social conservatives have, have a tough fight in the short run though. I mean, 
And what I mean by the short run is 20 years or less. I mean, I think that we have the advantage because of inertia. But uh, all that said, I, I liked what French said about the Kavanaugh fight because he says, we won the Kavanaugh fight by appealing to classical liberal values, such as cross-examination, hard evidence, and the presumption of innocence. We didn't win by insulting or owning the libs. I mean, that's exactly right. Yes. We didn't, we didn't, we actually didn't fight fire with fire. Instead, it was like, okay, let's hear her out. So she had her moment to share her story and, and, uh, the cross-examination was, you know, unfulfilling because she didn't have much left to say. And, you know, there just wasn't enough evidence. And basically I a hundred percent agree with French, you know, the classical liberal values, that's what won the day. It wasn't getting nasty or fighting fire with fire. I mean, at the end of the day, it was pretty clear that even if something had happened many years ago, like there really wasn't enough proof, it wasn't mm-hmm. any proof. So no, I said it was, a, it was, I agree. It was a great point by French. You know, you, we can win on those terms. And it was, it was by appealing to those terms that they won. It wasn't just that they played with in the rules and won in the Kavanaugh fight. I mean, I, we, I've read tons of people who say that they got radicalized even by the kind of chicanery that was going on on the left in the Kavanaugh hearings. And with our response being, you know, the, the traditional values of liberty, values of, you know, having to prove something, not just having people be guilty by accusation, you know, having a, that we can't just have government by smear tactics that appealed to people. I mean, and those yeah. are, those are values that are classically American and classically conservative and it did work. And, and that was in departing from them, the left antagonized a lot of neutral observers. So I think that is a good, what put that way, as French puts it, it, it does give me some hope, the idea that people are willing to defend these liberal values, even if, as Amari says, it, it, liberty doesn't exactly give us culture, and that's mm-hmm. true, but it, it gives us a means to protect our culture, French would say, the culture that already exists and the culture that people want to continue to exist. So it, it the system is not as failed as it may first appear. I think French is right about that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So I think that about covers the, the tactics question. The strategy question is much more interesting to me. I don't know about you, but mm-hmm. the, the question of, you know, should government actively legislate or compel morality? You know, like George Will say, the government should legislate morality to nurture or alter habits, you know, cultivate the best in people, you know, and both him and Robert Bork would say, we should censor obscenity and maybe curtail the first amendment in to some degree in order to keep the public square clean of pornography and, you know, sexually ex- explicit material or, or violent or uh, degrading uh, material. Even though I, I come down clearly on, on the side of uh, individualism and classical liberalism and, and libertarianism on, when it comes to, we should have maximal autonomy of the, of the individual. Like, I, I think that that's a, a legitimate debate though. And a legitimate question, you know, you know, so this is the, I would call the illiberal right. And actually even in a, one of our essays, we read Stephanie Slade, who I'm not sure I'm familiar with her, but I really loved what she wrote. Yeah. She says, uh, 
a liberalism on the right. Amari also wants to use government power to constrain people's freedom. And it's a, a liberal conservatism is a rejection of the right's longstanding fusion of social traditionalism with staunch respect for individual rights. A liberal right views civil, civil libertarians as moral relativists, libertines. You really touched on this already. I'd love to hear more. You know, when it comes to in the long haul, it's a really tough fight for social conservatives to win when it comes to, let's say gay marriage or, mm-hmm. you know, transgender or, I mean, abortion, I think is maybe a different case. I mean, and guns, but I think David French, I heard him on a podcast. He raised some of these saying like, we've had some wins and we've had some losses. If you're, if you're a social conservative like him, you know, there's, there's been some advancement on, on guns and abortion while there's been some, some retreat, you know, some, uh, pushback when it comes to some of the other social issues. So it's not, it's not an absolute, you know, win or loss, but, um, in any event, the real balance that we've seen in a number of our readings between maintaining the traditional social order, traditional mores, making sure that, that Americans have virtue because we believe, I believe that without virtue, personal virtue, like this country isn't going to last the long haul, but you balance that against like having individual rights so that the government can't come take your property or, you know, tell you how to live your life because today it's going to be social conservatives saying, you know, you can't have premarital sex, but tomorrow it's going to be the liberals saying, you know, you can't have, you know, any relationships and, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, and your kids are going to be farmed out to a, mm-hmm. a kid, uh, camp or something like that, or, you know what I mean? That, yeah, that's, whatever that's the extreme the is. Too, I mean. so. And it's the same thing. I think a lot, a lot of people on the left had this triumphal vision of the future of a, you know, a permanent democratic majority. You know I mean? There were books written about that in 92. It didn't pan out, but then people were talking about it again in 2016, the, the demographics is destiny argument. And that's when you start getting into these, well, now we should have the, the power to really dictate and control things in the culture. And you only say that when you think you're never going to lose again. Well, I remember Republicans in 2004 when, when Bush won, I mean, there was nothing but conversation about the permanent Republican majority, which didn't seem right to me. And now it's just been completely disproven because, you know, like you said, in 2012, 2014, 2016, Democrats saying, Oh, the, you know, the demographics are destiny, you know, Republicans are destined to be losers forever. And, Meanwhile, Trump wins. Yeah, and eventually the Democrats will have control of Congress and the presidency again. I mean, and probably not even that, not even in the distant future. It'll happen, and we'll get it back. And it's, do you want to trust that? I mean, this this is the tension we've gone through all season. You know, is there should the government promote virtue or just promote liberty and let people find their own virtue? And mm-hmm. I mean, French defines Frenchism, and he even finds the idea that there is a Frenchism sort of silly. But maybe he's just being humble. He says, Frenchism, is that a thing now? Contains two main components. Zealous defense of the classical liberal order with a special emphasis on civil liberties. And zealous advocacy of fundamentally Christian and Burkean conservative principles. That's that's what, yeah, I mean, that's what Amari calls the dead, the dead consensus, the old coalition. Mm-hmm. But that's, I think, what's kept conservatism going all these years. And it, like you say, I mean, I think virtue and liberty have to be tied together. So I don't think French is that far out or 
certainly not outdated by saying that private virtue paired with public liberty make for a, a just government and a, and a healthy people. Right. It's it's a pretty classic formulation, and it mostly works for us. But yeah. it, I guess I guess it does produce those occasional frustrations that will lead to these outbursts. Well, so apparently there's this thing called drag queen story time, which, uh, you know, I'm only marginally familiar with, but this is so what got the whole thing started. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so he gets cr- criticized for that, not pushing back. He says, does reordering the common good mean using the power of the state to prohibit a freedom of association? Like, like a drag queen story time. It's a great question because I think dread, you know, drag queen story time st- sounds appalling to me, but on the other hand, I don't, I do not for one second want my government telling a drag queen that, you know, he, she cannot have story time. You know, I mean, no. Yeah. No, I, I think part of the objection was that it was sometimes going on in public libraries. So it's a little, it's a little more entanglement, but at the same time, you don't have to go. Yeah. Well, don't go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, no, they're not, it's not like it's going on in the public school and, you know, you're don't have any other choice you have to your kid is sitting through some sort of gender indoctrination it's you know it's it's something i wouldn't take my kid to but it's not it's not really undermining the foundations of the republic i don't think all right and so he you know he follows that up with the question of why does anyone think that the forces of christian statism will continue to prevail i mean the argument that amari is really making here is that we need a robust, active government on the side of socially conservative goals, he says, which basically implies a, a really coercive political order. And it, that just is fully reliant on who's in power. Because we're in power today mm-hmm. and they're in power tomorrow. And I mean, I, I ask the Democrats what they think about the, their decision to eliminate the filibuster on judicial nominees. You know, I mean, it, it, yeah. it, it gave us Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. I mean, Win today, yeah. lose tomorrow. It and that's it's always going to be that way. And you think anybody who's been around a few years will recognize that there, there is no permanent victory in politics. Even huge landslides will melt away, and they always have. Um, Amari is is pushing back. Also, I think just on the general idea that's pretty popular on the right of uh, just anti-statism. Yeah. And that's that's a twist and it's something we've seen a lot under, you know, since Trump, but it's always it's been there. He talks about he says conservative liberalism of the kind French embodies has a great horror of the state, of traditional authority, and of the use of public power to advance the common good including in the realm of public morality. We do. I, and I think I have come across this in, in policy discussions I've had and the things I've written where it's, well, you know, if we could use the government to do this and then there's always going to be comments that say no, they should just abolish that entire department. Yeah. It's like, oh, I sympathize with that a lot of times. I think there are entire departments that should be abolished. But well, it's like it's like Will said in back in season one, is that we have to have a at this point, you know, fifty years after the New Deal he was writing, said we have to have a position on the welfare state other than abolition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't think that's rhinoism. I don't think that's me too conservatism. I th- I mean back when me too has a different meaning now. Uh, I don't think it's Eisenhower conservatism where they were just saying, yeah, I like the new deal too. It's, it's kind of acceptance of there is this thing 
if we do nothing, if our only policy is abolish, mm -hmm. then the, the people who run the welfare state will always be lefty because they'll be the only ones who want to be involved with it. And then they'll, the solutions they come up with all, will always be leftist. And if we think those solutions are bad, we have to come up with something else. So that, that, that point of Amari's is good, I think. And it's, it's an answer to the idea of, of so-called Frenchism, that culture is the only antidote to the state. I mean, I think he exaggerates French's opinion on that, but I think it's an opinion that some libertarians do hold. Well, it's it's. I get why he's not satisfied with that because the argument that oh, we just need to fight back and change the culture. I mean, it's kind of like, well, <laughs> that's not something that you that changes easily, and the culture is basically a wholly owned subsidiary of the left when it comes to mainstream media and in uh, the. Hollywood industrial complex as we, mm -hmm. as we identified, but we read this other article that you identified by Rod Dreyer. Is that how you say his name? I always mispronounce it. So I'm not sure. Dreyer. Well, Dreyer so anyway, think, yeah. uh, I'm sure he's great. Um, no doubt. I've read something of his and didn't know it before, but uh, I liked what he said here because so first of all, he, he identifies, I guess an undercurrent that I wouldn't have not recognized, which is this, two camps in Catholicism. He says there's two camps, classical liberals who believe that Christianity can be reconciled with liberalism on the one hand. And then on the other hand, those that believe liberalism and Christianity are fundamentally incompatible. And then he identified Deneen, I forget his first name, but uh, who just wrote that book while liberalism failed mm -hmm. at uh, Notre Dame. So I assume he's Catholic. So that's a book we're probably gonna have to pick up at some point. And Alistair McIntyre, which is on our list too at some point after virtue. But anyway, mm -hmm. so he's, you know, based on those two camps, like Dreyer says, if not liberalism, then what? And I thought this was really timely after our, our reading with Fukuyama, because, you know, Fukuyama's last man, um, the end of history, last man. Well, he goes through kind of the, the intellectual history of, of, uh, of liberalism and the competitors um, in the 20th century, 21st century, and comes to the conclusion that liberalism is probably the best we can do. And Dreher here basically asks that question, like, well, if, if not liberalism, you know, Amari, like, what's your recommendation? Because he says, for all liberalism's flaws, there is no alternative that is both preferable and realistic. And then he makes the point, which is, to me, is, self-evident he says religious conservatives are a minority in post-christian america sorry to inform you you know so it's one yeah. thing if you have you know dominant control and you can just strong arm but the fact is it's shrinking and frankly it's shrinking pretty fast i mean the the rise of the nuns i mean it, only 10 years ago there was you know well, 15 years ago, there was 5%. Now there's 25% of the population says they are not a member of a, of an organized religion. So, you know, that to, to a point you've made in the past, like that could be reversed. But in the meantime, you know, like religious conservatives are a minority and it's an actually a shrinking minority. So how do you think that you're going to, you know, I guess be a, a minority uh, dictator somehow and force your minority? Yeah, that, that, that line of Dreyer's is one I had underlined too. I think he really gets at the point. And, and he mentions a couple of societies in the 20th century that did have that, that did both have Catholic majorities and a Catholic 
church that was really integrated with the state, and that's Spain and mm -hmm. Ireland. And if you look at both those places now, it did not stick. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Like it worked yeah. for it worked for a while, kind of. Uh, it involved some considerable repression, and it also encouraged emigration of a lot of people who couldn't live under that system, which that benefited the United States because a lot of those people came here. But it it was a it was kind of a society that it was ordered in a certain way, I mean, what they call Catholic uh, integral in, in, integralism. Yeah, I mean, so explain to not, us what that, what that means. One, the idea that, I mean, that here I'll, I'll say what Dreyer says about it is it's someone who broadly speaking believes that church and state should not be separate. And this is not a, an opinion of, I mean, this is the sort of opinion that uh, when Kennedy ran for president, a lot of people said that this was what all Catholics think. And it was, even then that was not true. And it's pretty much a minority opinion among some scholars today. I don't think you'd find too many people out on the streets who think we should have an established church in this country. Mm -hmm. And even among those who think there should be an established church, I don't think there's that many people who think it should be the Catholic church. Well, yeah. So that's, what's even more interesting is to the extent that there's a religious conservative majority. I mean, it's evangelical probably. <laughs> yeah. And this is kind of like, I mean, evangelicals and Catholics have gotten together politically in a way that would have been unthinkable before the uh, Vatican II in the sixties. Um, because they do agree on a lot of things yeah. and, you know, I mean, especially when, when the, when the alternative is, um, anti-religion or, or just indifference to religion, then you can understand why these two different Christian sects who may have hated each other for 500 years, but now they realize they, uh, they have a lot in common. Well, it's, it's, it's a fascinating but, evolution to have, um, Southern Baptists and Mormons fighting side by side. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot in Catholics as well. I mean, and I guess they're all not just against the culture, they're all against you know, a lot of the mainstream, the mainline Christian churches that have um, more or less moved in the direction of, of the culture. But. but then that also gets to the point of, I mean, they're all on the same side because they're all reacting against a problem. Yeah, yeah. They're all reacting against the advance of, of uh, secular liberalism. But then that, that this other line of Dreyer's kind of illustrates the problem of, of the, what do we do next? He said, he says, uh, a Christian academic friend and I were talking a while back about classical Christian education, and he lamented most of the parents he knew from his local classical Christian school were running away from liberalism more than running toward a, visit, a vision of classical virtue, Christian or otherwise. And I think that's a question. You've got this big tent now of different sects who are all fighting against encroaching secularism. But if you ask them, well, what should it be instead? You know, not should we have tolerance? But if you had to order this whole society, what would it be? Then those old, uh, those old problems are going to come right back to the surface mm -hmm. because Southern Baptists, Mormons, and Catholics are all going to butt heads on exactly how things ought to be. You know, they, right. they can't, they can't agree on much once you get past the, the general idea of Christianity yeah, itself. Yeah. So I, yeah, there's not really a, there's not a market for this. <laughs> I don't think. Yeah. Well, so in our in our the last article we read, Stephanie Slade. Um, again, I thought she was great, so I'll, I'll have to look her up. But um, I mean, she really draws draws out that the strategic side of this argument, which is, you know, she's basically is like, what what is meant by the common good? Because you know, the, the, there's a Catholic view, there's a social conservative view that Amari seems to hold, but I mean, progressives also believe that they're that they're being moral and that they're you know pressing what's the, the right and the good 
obviously we've had this conversation billions of times on, on, on other episodes, but so you, but you have this illiberalism on the right, which we talked about, which is using government to impose morality. And it's basically the George Will book and, and Robert Bork, you know, let's, let's have greater censorship and, and, uh, legislate, uh, public morality. You know, Amari says that this was Trump's goals, which we'll have to set this aside, but I thought that was freaking bizarre. I mean, he, he paints yeah. a picture of Trump, which just doesn't exist in nature. Yes. He says Trump's instinct has been to shift the cultural and political mix ever so slightly away from autonomy above all toward order, continuity, and social cohesion. Social cohesion, that's interesting. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily put that with Trump. He believes that the political community and not just the church, family, and individual has its own legitimate scope for action. He believes it can help protect the citizen from transnational forces beyond his control. I, so, I this is uh, French says this, and of course I agree. Like this sounds, I mean, this is a characterization of Trump that even Trump wouldn't recognize. Yeah, that, that, let me. But, I mean, I, I just got to read what what French said in response to that particular paragraph. It says Donald Trump wouldn't even fully grasp what that paragraph means, much less recognize it as a governing <laughs> philosophy. He's a man of prodigious personal appetites, a man who proudly hangs a Playboy cover on the wall of his office, a man who marries and marries again and again, yet feels compelled to find porn stars to his, to bed. In his essay, Amari condemns the man who craves autonomy above all else. He is, without knowing it, condemning Trump. I, yes. I thought that was that was the real like nail in the coffin. <laughs> that's the one that that's the one that that to me said, yeah, okay, I know which side I'm on now. <laughs> Well, and also, you know, it that that when you get when you finally read that too, you're kind of like, okay, so half of this obviously was written as to just to generate controversy. You know, I'm going to do two things to generate controversy. Number one, I'm going to uh, target and launch missiles at David French you know, like out of the blue and with with no warning and really no rationale. On the one hand, to catch attention, and on the other hand, I'm gonna I'm going to lay down everything that I believe. And then I'm going to say that that's how Trump views the world. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, not quite. And I, All I right, so that, back to oh, you go go ahead. Well, I just I think a lot of people did vote for Trump because they, and also believe that that's what they wish Trump would be. And then maybe that there's a better version of Trump out there who could fulfill that role of that populist, social conservative. But well, certainly you see that. I mean, you you absolutely could see. A, a populist who is just as aggressive without, let's say, the moral personal failings of a Trump that uh, could be incredibly potent in, in American politics. Yeah. And maybe maybe Trump does feel that way now at age 73, but that's not how he's lived most of his life. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's hard to believe that that's how he wants. That's, that's really what is at his heart is this sort of social Christian conservative that Amari imagines him to be. Mm-hmm. Well, so back to that other point real quick. Uh, so she talks about illiberalism on the right, which we've just talked about, and then illiberalism on the left, which we know like the progressives are, they want to command people beha- people's behavior too. She says, uh, socialists seek to command people's behavior in the economic sphere. And it's like these uh, social justice warriors that are trying to impose you know, thought police, you know, uh, what she calls right think on matters of culture. I mean, it's happening in the university. You know, you, you can't talk about half things, you know, it's, it's philosophy is just dead white males that has, that are, you know, just trying to impose their, 
or maintain mm-hmm. their privilege or whatever. I mean, so you have this hardcore illiberalism on the left. They're happy also and eager to impose their own views of the world and force everybody to be a part of it of 1984, you know? And so, I mean, just for listeners, like if, if it seems like we, I am coming down hard on Amari and this is the reason why, because again, I, I totally understand why he feels deeply unsatisfied with, you know, the, the faith in, in individualism and in classical liberalism, because, because they're fronts in this war that, frankly, social conservatives are, are losing in the short term and, and in the long, especially in the long term. And I get why that's frustrating. On the other hand, though, I just go right back to Dreyer's point, which is like, if not liberalism, then what? Well, we can impose our morality now, but then tomorrow the left is going to impose their morality and it's far worse than what liberalism will, will give us. So I think that sums it up. Think? I think that's, that's right on. It's uh, there's no, there's no limiting principle here. That's that's the, the real issue. What has limiting principles is the principles of liberal democracy, the idea of limited government and, and natural rights. They limit government in a way that nothing else can. And that, that puts the handcuffs on us yeah. occasionally too. But it... Exactly, yeah. It I think it protects us a lot more than it hurts anyone. So I... And this, yeah. if these essays kind of pushed me a little more back to the libertarian side if anything because yeah i I did have to think about these issues and i I think it's i'm glad that this debate is going on in conservatism because we should be talking about ideas we we shouldn't just be yelling about personalities we should we should be instead of obsessing about the president's tweets or whatever's whatever nonsense bills being brought up in the house we should we should be thinking about ideas because ultimately that's where the new laws that's where the next president that's where that that's where the country's going. It has to start with ideas. So I'm, I'm glad people are having this fight and mm-hmm. they're having it publicly and then in, in print so that we can all discuss it, think about what really matters to us. It, it's a, it's a debate worth having. Yeah. That's a perfect last word. That's it for Amari and David French. That actually went kind of well. So maybe we'll try something contemporary. Let's um, sprinkle it in sometime again in the future. But for next time, we're going to read uh, one of the godfathers of conservatism. That's Russell Kirk, A Concise Guide to Conservatism. This is his work that's a little bit more distilled and, and uh, down in, uh, in plain language because he, he can write in a way that's difficult to uh, maintain your interest in my experience. So this is a lot more concise. So uh, that comes from uh, 1957. So that's what we got for next week. Join us then. Thanks. Bye.